Welcome to the third instalment of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Patrick, Mark and Graham discussing the bands from the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. As Mark and Patrick have read the introductions to our last two podcasts, I thought I would do the honours and introduce today's band. One of the hallmarks of post-punk that we've established on our recent podcasts is the emergence of the bass guitar as a featured instrument, as opposed to pretty much the background in much of popular music. And in no band was this more prevalent than in today's featured artists, Japan. There has been some debate between the three of us as to whether they deserve to be categorised as a post-punk band. They did start their life in 1974 as an almost glam rock outfit. They looked like uh, the New York Dolls playing a kind of punk-funk hybrid. They then went through various changes in look, style and performance and unwittingly, much to their chagrin, spearheaded the new romantic movement of the early 80s. But their music became much admired at this time due to its unique instrumentation, the the uh, cool, slick vocal delivery of David Sylvian and the amazing fretless bass of Mick Kahn that made them stand out from so many of their contemporaries. There was never anyone like them and there has been no one like them since. So guys, Japan. Japan, where do we start? The well, hair. The hair. Well, we're going to start with the, the first two albums that they ever released. Yeah. Graham pointed out they started in 74. Yeah. Met at school. Catford, I believe. Uh, yep. Right? Yes. Yep. Lewisham, Catford. Yes. S- North South London. S- South, South London. South London. South All London. Right. Fair enough. It was a shocking yeah. accent, but anyway. That was my, <laughs> that was my West London accent. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so they, they kicked around for a few years. They were mates. They, uh, they were all at school together, yep. apart from Rob Dean, who was a few years older. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the four of them were wearing makeup together at school, and um, which would have really gone the, down a storm. <laughs> they wore makeup at school. Um, two, two or three of them did, yeah. Um, but uh, Richard Barbieri was captain of the school football team, mm. so he didn't get beaten up, <laughs> whereas <laughs> the other guys did. I don't. He think... did the beating up. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it isn't necessarily really widely known what Japan looked like for their first couple of albums because they're they're best known for the kind of quite chic. New romantic mm. era. But if you look at pictures of them in those early years, they could have easily been or gone on to be an American heavy metal band. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Just the, the way they looked, the clothes they wore. Well, put it, it in context, in 74, 75, you're talking about Slade, Bowie, Mark mm. Boland, Glam Rock. Mm. It wouldn't have been that bizarre mm. to go, hey, these guys are wearing makeup. It would have been, well, they're into Glam Rock. Yeah, yeah. And that would have been as, as acceptable as, you know, having a punk rock haircut in 77 or 78. Yeah. It would have been a little bit odd but not as odd as it might sound to us now. Although it was pretty odd by 1977, 78. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, yeah. When, when they recorded their, when their they first album. When they got together. That, that's, yeah. that's what baffles me. Well, the sidewalk straight in love. The subway lights grow brighter. just another hype. With the precious... Well, that's what's interesting about Adolescent Sex and Obscure Alternatives of the two albums we're t- talking about that were released in 78, the same year, mm. which is no mean feat. No. The interesting thing was, and Graham pointed this out, that they went completely against the tide of what was going on at the time with their look mm. and the sound. And, I mean, they were playing, you know, it was it was kind of a weird hybrid of, well, it sounded like the New York Dolls, a lot of it to me, mm. but there was a funk element Yeah, a little there. bit of reggae. A little bit of reggae, a little bit of everything. David Sylvian's voice had yet to develop into the, uh, the sort of baritone style that we mm. associate with them. 
I mean, there's some good songs on there, some catchy stuff, but in 78 you probably couldn't get arrested playing that sort of music. Well, the, 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 <laughs> no, no. Um, the, the, they came to, to my attention and probably your attention as well. Saturday morning music show? I was I was going to say Saturday evening this time. <laughs> ah, you were staying up Countdown late. Countdown, humdrum, night moves, night ah, moves, interesting moves. Whoever that guy was, Lee, that, Lee somebody, Simon. Lee, Lee Simon. Simon. There you go. Cool dude. Actually, I'm completely wrong. It was Countdown. It was it was Countdown. You rain, saw- don't. Was it Rain on My Parade? Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, rain, on don't, don't rain on My Parade, an old Barbara Streisand song. Mm. Um, it was on Countdown. It was on Countdown, okay. and it was certainly uh, on on humdrum, if not the whole song. Yeah, but uh, but. Uh, I remember, um, I don't know whether it was a hit, but people took notice of it. And I think it was purely because it was a, people knew it as a Barbara Streisand Mm. song. It was from some musical that she starred in. Yeah, it's pretty uh, terrible. (laughs) I I don't mind it as a version. I mean, it's not the Japan that we know, but it's certainly a a, a different take on it. It was a Japan. It was a Japan. And they were very successful in Japan. Yeah, I was. I was just going to say that there was a country where they were very successful, and um, <laughs> I wanted you guys to guess the name yeah. of that country. Starts bearing with J. in mind the name of the band. Yeah. Java. <laughs> I did read a quote from Japan's manager um, Simon Napier Bell, who said that when Japan toured Japan in 1979, it was the first time they'd played a gig. Like headlined a gig playing in front of more than 140 people. It's so, a very precise and, number. And this was after, yeah. And this was after they they released two albums and they still hadn't headlined to more than 140 people. And then they went to Japan and they played three sold out nights at the Budokan. Budokan, I was going to say, was it the Budokan? Yeah. Cheap Tricks' favourite venue. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was it was pretty amazing. But who the hell signed them? It was a German label they were on, wasn't yeah, it? Hansa? Hansa, Hansa. Yeah. Why? I don't, I, yeah. you know, looking at them and listening to it, it just would have made no sense at all as to no. what was going on in any way that I can relate to. It's mm. quite bizarre. Mm. It was classic post-punk era and two or three miles down the road from Catford was Bromley. So Susie and the Banshees were, you know, were doing, doing their thing, do, doing their stuff. <laughs> Like two or three miles away, and that's what was happening. Not this, not this weird American, quite American influence. Mm. I'd say mm. sound that Japan. They they were just in a little, like they were in a cave for the <laughs> you know for the, for the first three or four years. That it was as if punk had never happened <laughs> <laughs> for Japan. But, but for it, like all these songs, which are literally number one on the UK charts, like Sex Pistols and, and various post-punk bands that we know and love. And then there's this kind of hair metal kind of weird bunch of geezers from you know, Catford. It's it's just so weird. Lost just so strange. in time. Mm. Mm. It, it was. It would be interesting to talk to them to, to find out what was going through their minds at that time. I mean, yeah. obviously they, they saw the New York Dolls and they liked them because did, didn't they take their names from, from some of the they New did. York Dolls? They uh, did. David Sylvian took his name as a, a twist on um, Sylvain. Sylvain, Sylvain. Sylvain, Sylvain. Uh, We should also point out that the drummer and the singer are brothers. Yes. Were brothers and still are, presumably mm. brothers. Yeah. And they both changed their names to uh, Steve Jansen and David Sylvian. But yeah, their real name is... Bat. Bat. Bat, yeah. But Steve Jansen, there was Stephen Johansson. Or was it David Johansson? David Johansson. Yes, that's right. So that was kind of like a contraction of... Joe Hansen, I guess. So and they were they were big fans. Yeah. And even <laughs> even Mick Khan 
Yeah. Um, there was a Kane, Billy Kane. Yeah, Arthur Arthur Kane. Arthur Kane. Yeah. Uh, in New York Dolls. Um, <laughs> God, I'm, so. getting, I'm getting the first names wrong. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, Mick Khan changed his name. He was a Greek Cypriot background, and he had an appropriately Greek Cypriot name. Um, Mick. Mick. Um, Anthony, I think, <laughs> is his real first name. Could well mm-hmm. be. And this this was the five uh, person lineup at this point, wasn't it? Yes, that's Rob right. Dean we've, we've, and Richard Barbieri and um, am I missing someone? No, that's fine. Uh, no, and the two bats and <laughs> and a belfry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's did, right. Did you hear that um, the, the the record company had a um, a battle of the bands? That uh, that's that, 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 that were, their own battle of the bands, as in yeah, from the label. Yeah, from the label. Okay. And um, who are the best of our bands? Well, the the thing is, they were beaten by the Cure. Oh, I didn't oh. know that. The Cure won. Wow. And, and then Japan came second. That's just, Not bad. Just t- tying this podcast in with our last one. Very good. Very yeah. good. But, yeah, they, they were both with that. Is it Arista Hansa? Yeah. Hansa. Hansa, Hansa? Yeah. yeah. And something else that, that struck me about uh, Japan is that they did have pretty out there brash advertising techniques courtesy of their manager, Simon Napier-Bell, who had been previously manager of the Yardbirds in the 60s and Mark Bolan in the 70s. And, and so wham he was, later. And wham later, exactly, yes. yeah. So it was quite a wheeler and dealer, but he'd been out of the music scene for a few years prior to becoming manager of Japan. So he still had fairly kind of old school ideas about how to market a band. So like full page ads in the music press and, you know, just... David Sylvian brandishing a samurai sword and those, those Ooh, kinds of things. That's which, good. Which are just, you know, <laughs> in 1978 that... It couldn't have been any more uncool. <laughs> no. It's basically what we're trying to establish no. here. It's so, completely so, and utterly wrong. Yeah. So a band, like the, the classic kind of new wave thing was very kind of softly, softly in terms of, you know, you would, you would not hype a band ever because that would be the kiss of death and that mm. is exactly what, with the hair and the full-page ads in the music press... And the, Did we the, mention the makeup? And the makeup, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they scowled very much either because you were supposed to stand in front of a brick wall and scowl. Right. That was right. the thing to do. In yeah, no, that's right. They that's were right. pouting. They were more they were pouting. They probably pouting. So, mm. wow. Compl- However, I'd just like to say that Adolescent Sex, the first album, I bought that and I really liked it. So uh, that just shows I, how I, out of touch you were <laughs> with everything, Graham. No, the, the reason you why. You were not cool. No, well, that's given. I think. <laughs> but... Um, uh, the first album, um, I bought that. And I probably bought it because of the Barbara Streisand song. But, uh, <laughs> There's show so many. tunes. You can't get enough of show There's tunes. There's so many directions a conversation could take right now. Mm. Yeah, so I loved Barbara. But um, I've said this, and it's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit this, but um, I think if you're a guitarist and you learn how to play funk guitar, it's probably best if you say, oh, well, I listened to um, Sly and the Family Stone. Chic. Or Chic or something like that. Yeah. I actually listened to the first Japan album and uh, it was it was very funky. It was, it was lots of yeah. guitar riffs, but it was very syncopated and uh, and that was kind of where I, I learned how to play that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of indebted to it to a certain extent, even though it's kind of embarrassing to admit that that's where I, I learned funk well, from, it is, from, it is from, from, from these white five English guys from Catford <laughs> <laughs> doesn't get any funkier than that that's where, that's where that's street cred that's where funk started that was, my, my friends funk started. Mm. The, I think the black people took it from the white yeah. people in yeah. London, mm. as in as London as I right. thought white guys with makeup let's <laughs> let's try and do this let's follow their lead yeah but anyway, I, yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I did like the first album. The, the second album was a little bit harder to get into, I think. You were probably one of the 140 people that would have seen them uh, if they had come to Australia. If they'd come to Australia, I definitely would have seen them. Mm. 
Wow. But I uh, would have preferred to have seen them later on, but we'll get to that. Which brings us to? Life in Tokyo. The shift. The shift, yes. The seismic shift. (laughs) What on earth happened between October 1978 and May 1979? If, If you look on YouTube... The single um, or a single from Obscure Alternatives mm-hmm. called Sometimes I Feel So Low, something yeah. along those lines. Uh, yeah, October 1978, and that's got the kind of snarling big hair, um, the the outfits which, Mark, With, you're a you're a fashion consultant. You can um, you, you, you can describe them better better than I can. Well, yeah, it, to me it's just a, I don't know some bizarre hangover from the glam era. They probably had platform boots on. I can get mm, to check their yeah. feet out, but I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, yeah, they were certainly um, ploughing their own furrow. Mm, indeed, on, the, on that front, <laughs> you can say that. So yeah, what did happen? Patrick? Yeah, well, so so it was like that was October 1978, and again on YouTube, have a look at the life in Tokyo clip from May 1979, so seven months later, and they had been completely transformed into a kind of a Roxy music-esque, very suave, sophisticated, the the crooning Sylvian as distinct from the snarling Sylvian, and I, I'm completely baffled. Well, maybe it's a similar thing that happened to Roxy Music because they went on, underwent a mm. similar transformation themselves. I mean, Brian Ferry wasn't always the smooth debonair no, chap, no. and he didn't sing in the same style either. He suddenly changed, and maybe that was something that they saw as a way forward, because they weren't being being successful. They weren't really getting anywhere no, with, this, no. with this other thing. So the Life in Tokyo single was the um, co-production with Giorgio Moroder and co- co-written as well. Co-written. So maybe the famous disco producer, famous, awesome, amazing mm. guy, Giorgio Moroder, that somehow got in touch with them. They maybe through the German record label, something like that. And did this song with him, which had featured a sequencer and was kind of a disco track, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, which led the way forward to the Japan that we know and probably appreciate a touch more Graham aside um, than the previous incarnation. <laughs> I was disappointed. Unlike you were like, <laughs> you're letting me down, guys. What is I, this I, disco? I'd only just grown my hair long. <laughs> <laughs> and now they've changed it on me. What? Again, things have moved on? <laughs> so, so, Graham, as someone who was an aficionado of... The album Adolescent Sex. Um, do you remember how you felt about the shift in sound to the kind of... <laughs> I'm just glad you put the words of the album in. <laughs> I think yes. you probably bought that album thinking it was about something else. Yeah. <laughs> it was some tips maybe. Yeah. So do, do you recall hearing Life in Tokyo or the, the subsequent album Quiet Life and, and thinking, wow, what, what what's this all about? Yeah, yeah. I mean... I think um, in 79, I, I probably hadn't come on board. Like it would have been before I'd gotten into other bands that used sequences like Simple Minds, for instance. Mm. But uh, I, I think I had the single. But, yeah, I, I just remembered it, it just sounded like a completely different band. It's like an advertising agency came in and just rebranded them. And stuff. Yeah. <laughs> got a new singer. Yeah, got a new, yeah, new singer. This is, this is it. What, what made him all of a sudden start crooning like that? Mm. Was, and wearing suits instead of the kind of glam Yeah, stuff. The hair was toned down a little bit. Too. Yeah, yeah, it was all a little yeah. bit smoother looking. Mm. It wasn't so fright wig as it had no. been. Yeah. And and their their stage moves seemed different as well. I mean, Richard Barbieri behind keyboards always looked a little bit as if he'd rather be somewhere else, and mm. so that was that was consistent. But you know, Mick Khan on bass was kind of looking pretty stylish and some stylish moves compared to the the kind of rock moves. Well, this so, obviously mm. was the direction that they wanted to take because the third album, Quiet Life, is where we would probably say Japan started to be the Japan that we know. 
Mm. Yeah. The sequences, the smoothness, the kind of minor key stuff, the kind of that sort of slight sadness, the look, everything about it kind of became that album, Quiet Life. And the song mm. Quiet Life, I think they did a remix with Giorgio Moroder as well of that, which was also fantastic. Um, but, yeah, that's a strange one because it prefigures what they became associated with as the new romantic era and you can tell that that album influenced Duran Duran in a huge way, mm. um, not just them but a lot of people as a way forward because they already looked like that. They just found the music that matched it. Mm. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and who knows why or whether it was a happy accident or something deliberate. We don't know but it was a big influence on what was to come, I suppose. This is where we would call it post-punk because post-punk doesn't have to be loud guitar music, it's anything that came in the mm. wake of punk and there were a lot of young kids like Steve Strange and, and Duran and, and Spando Ballet and all those guys that were probably a touch young for punk or if not a touch young, left a little bit behind but mm. when it rolled out and started to fade away, were ready to do something and this led the way towards what they wanted to do mm. which was a bit slicker and a bit more, um, I don't know, just funner looking, <laughs> if that's yeah. a word. Yeah. And uh, so the comparisons with Roxy Music, I mean, they um, Japan got some pretty negative reviews for Quiet Life courtesy of sounding allegedly like well, what, what, Roxy what Music Roxy Light. What Roxy doing in 79? It predates um, Love is the Drug. And th- no, no, maybe it doesn't. Um, yeah, Ma- Manifesto, Manifesto and, and Flesh and Blood were, were there are Flesh and Blood was 80. Time. Yeah, yeah, so you're right. Manifesto would be the year before, which is Love is the Drug. So I I don't think they're ripping off Roxy music. I think it just happened to sort of roll around at the same time. I mean, it's difficult to remember, but things run at their course and then people are looking for something new. Whether Mm. that happens to be there as a coincidence or not, I don't know. But it's such a a left turn that it's no one's really explained and they haven't. No, no. Themselves have left that mystery there. Well, he, he certainly does sound more like Brian Ferry, David Sylvian, than he does like anyone else. So I think the comparisons are, are understandable and, you know, music journalists are always looking for an angle and they were pretty cynical about Japan anyway. So it would have appealed to their to their sense of cynicism mm. about the, va- the band to find something to criticise about them because they didn't seem authentic in the classic punk or post-punk way. They, mm. they seemed... Um, affected, and they took no political way. stance. Yeah, they had nothing yeah, yeah, to say about anything yeah. on those fronts, which was deeply unfashionable in the music papers at the time. Mm. I thought the, by the way, I thought that we're we on the quiet life now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because we have been for about five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to the studio. <laughs> Sorry, I just came in. Um, I really liked the the title track from, from Quiet Life. That was the, the reason why I bought that that particular album. Um, even just, I think it was a single, was it? Yeah. Mm, but yeah. Uh, it was just, just as, as a single, I, I thought that was a great chorus. Um, it, it, it led on well from, you know, Life in Tokyo with the sequences and things. It took me a while to get into the rest of the album, but there's, there's lots of great songs on that album. Mm. Mm. I think it had only had eight tracks, didn't it? So they, mm. they sort of stretched them out and it got a bit longer. Mm. They were more dance tracks, so they were danceable and yep. so featured, you know, longer versions of things, which once again nobody was really doing in that 
world outside no, of disco no. artists. And mm. They may have even been one of the first to do 12, a 12 inch, I think, of Quiet Life or something. It was mm. definitely played in clubs. And mm. if you think about, once again, the new romantic clubs like Rum Runner in, in Birmingham, the Duran Duran ran, all those places, they would have been flogging this. And I know yeah, that yeah. Uh, the Blitz Club and all those places, mm. this song was getting was getting played along with Roxy yeah, and, yeah. and um, David Bowie and any of those other influences. So they, this was definitely a big album. Well, I guess the single Quiet Life felt like a natural progression from Life in Tokyo in terms of being being quite danceable and mm. sequence-driven, mm. uh, whereas the rest of the album was a, a little bit different. There was another cover version on there? Yes. So ain't, ain't that peculiar? That's right. Or, or uh, was that, was uh, that? All Tomorrow's Parties. All Tomorrow's ah, Parties. the Lou Reed yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, that's mm. right. Which once again would have been pretty unfashionable yeah, at yeah. the time. I mean, Lou Reed wasn't, uh, you know, seen as somebody that you really wanted to be doing cover versions of, I don't think, then. Mm. But it was a, a classic kind of album with the one-hit single on it, even though it wasn't, it wasn't a huge really hit. A hit. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whereas the the rest of it was was quite uh, reflective and al- albumish and mature mature music, I think you you could say. And and again, that that's not going to appeal to the to the music press. No, and that's certainly not at the time. How did you go with the guitar for that album, Graham? Uh, it, it was, I think Rob Dean was being pushed into the background <laughs> at this point. Um, so there wasn't much, but I remember I, I bought my first um, analogue synthesizer at the time. And um, I, I remember writing a song that was pretty much a ripoff for quite life. This is a familiar theme. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. That's, this is right. I'm, I'm sort of exposing myself as a fraud. <laughs> I was going to use the word plagiarist, but that's <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. That's fine yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with that. I, I, <laughs> Lawyers may quibble about the difference. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, basically I was young, so I was easily led. And at the time you, you hear stuff, you want to do stuff that sounds like that. Mm. I mean, I'm sure dance theatre did the same thing at the time. We're not talking about that. <laughs> you don't want me to draw attention to Dance okay. theatre never ripped off anybody. Let's talk, uh, we're talking about uh, the band that Mark and sometimes Graham played in called uh, Dance Theatre who uh, never ripped off anyone. No. It, it was well, all, it wasn't just it was Graham, all no. It was all 100% original. Cur- Curtis and Colin made the odd appearance <laughs> as well. Um, it was all 100% original, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, so do we feel like Quiet Life has been given its due? Uh, what, tonight or in, in history? Well, both. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not. I think it was, it was judged quite harshly at the time and I, yeah. I, I, thought, yeah. it was, I thought it was really good. I'm, I'm so still surprised it's 1979 for some reason. I, I thought it was later. Well, it uh, sounds like the sound of the 80s. Yeah. Mm. Like it does sound very much like what we know of that yeah. era. As yeah. I said, to me, it predates and prefigures a lot of the new romantic stuff mm. in every way. Mm. The, de- the vocal delivery, the sequences, the vaguely yeah. disco you know, feel to it, the drum patterns. And it, it just amazes me that they came out with that. And as I said, if, if that had been their first album, you'd go, well, obviously they've been working up to that. But you, you, if you're not familiar, I'm talking to you, listener, if you're not familiar <laughs> with Adolescent Sex, the album, and Obscure Alternatives, the album, you should do yourself a favour and, and actually make the comparisons because you won't believe it's the mm. same band. Mm. And mm. to go from, as we said, 78 to 79, pretty prolific period, yeah. much like our other bands that we've been speaking about yeah. in the last couple of uh, podcasts, to pump those out and then do a complete left turn. And as a band, how difficult would that be? Like, we're all going to completely change. Yeah. One person doesn't say it. They all had to change. Dave, I'm going to sing differently. Mick Carnes, I'm going to do something different. They're all going, bang, we're going somewhere else with this. Yeah. Straight away, seven right, months it, later. It was like even Mick Carn, like the fretless bass. All I same. don't remember hearing a great deal of his bass on the first two albums. No. It's no. on there, but it's not. No, the, the, but he, he slapped on occasion, but it, yeah. it, it, it was pretty yeah. much... 
Yeah. See, so was he playing fretless on those first two? I don't think so. I reckon. I think Fretless came came along on on, on Quiet Life. See, so where did he get that from? I I read something that he was a bassoon player, yeah, at school, and until a gang of skinheads stole it. Gang, those gang of skinheads again. Well, I mean, what what, what a, won't they do? Well, they they were pretty keen on bassoons in those days. <laughs> yeah, well, skinheads. Well, no, it was a mark of honour to steal someone's bassoon. I remember hearing that. <laughs> The toughest skinhead <laughs> yeah, would yeah. go up to the local classical music recital yeah. and steal a bassoon. <laughs> a bassoon, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think the Van Buren boys may have been involved <laughs> in that. <laughs> and it wasn't just any woodwind instrument. It had to be a bassoon. It had to be yeah. a bassoon. Well, if you wanted to be the leader of the pack, if I can mm. use that phrase. In, in Catford, anyway. In Catford, you had to steal a bassoon. Yeah. So, um, the yeah. uh, Bromley skinheads, they, they, the they thought that flutes were fine. Yeah. Different territories, different classical different instruments. instruments. <laughs> but poor old Mick, his school refused to buy him a replacement bassoon. Yes. So to show them, mm. he went out and bought a bass guitar. Mm. And at some point or another, he removed the frets himself because he wanted to be able to bend the notes. And for anyone out there that's not familiar with what a fretless bass guitar is, it's as it sounds, there's no frets. So there's no separation between notes, which makes it incredibly hard to play. So Mick removed them himself and taught himself to play because he's never had any proper lessons how to play fretless bass and became subsequently, if not one of the most famous fretless bass players, at least right up there with, mm. say, Pino Palladino. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't think of anybody else as well known as him, certainly in, in rock music. There's, anyway. pr- there's probably millions of them in, in the jazz world. But, yeah, uh, but in rock music, but in rock music it, not many. it's not, not too many, yeah. So... Yeah. Um, Yes, it yeah, was absolutely. certainly a, a strange move on their part, and we shall never know the truth no. behind it. No, and they've they haven't been very forthcoming about it. I think they all hate each other, or if not <laughs> each other, they hate David Sylvian. Yeah. yeah, he seems to be a problem child, doesn't he? Well, they they certainly seem to have suggested that he he erred on the side of pretension. That's hard to believe. Mm. I mean, really, David yeah. Sylvian? David Sylvian. I'm what? just going from what I've read. Yeah. So 12 months later. 12 months, is that right? One year later in 1980. One year later in 1980. The turn of the decade. Yes. The world is ripe for change. It is. And this John change. John Lennon's just been killed or is about to be. <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't know it. Doesn't yet realise. So, yes, I think, um, yes, gentlemen, take Polaroids was late 1980. I think you're right, and I'm I'm going to weigh in with my own take on that one because mm. I saw this with my friend, good friend Curtis, on a show called Take Five, which used to be on the ABC at five to six mm-hmm. on a weeknight oh. before Monkey Magic, oh. if anyone remembers that yeah, show. Monkey Magic, it's um, making a comeback, by the way. It's making anyway. a comeback, yeah. With non-Asians, non-Asian What are they called? Actors. Just regular people. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Non-Asians. Well, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm going to have to cut this out. But keep going. Well, no, I'm just. If well, you know I'm monkey, just saying that I'm appalled by the fact that. Of course, I would expect nothing less. Monkey magic without without monkeys without the appropriate cultural foundation mm. is no monkey magic. <laughs> and it's and, no monkey magic in my book. And well, I, I. If this is cut out, I'm just... You won't I'm, have it. I'm quitting the band. <laughs> well, I think you should leave it in because it, it, right. there may be people who don't know what monkey magic is. Anyway, take five yes. pre-figured monkey magic featuring whoever was in it. But they used to play 
what you might call sort of slightly left of centre tracks, like like Gentlemen Take Polaroids, mm -hmm. for example, which was the first time I saw Japan, and they'd play Ashes to Ashes, and you know stuff that was sort of out there, but not what you'd see on Countdown. And I don't think I ever saw Polaroids on Countdown. And it came on, and both Curtis and I were kind of transfixed by this because they looked as they looked, very glamorous, blonde hair, makeup. Very mm. suave and sophisticated suits, probably as well, which was a little unusual at the time. Yeah. I noticed these things, mm. and um, I think Curtis immediately went out and bought the album and um, continued to thrash it to death for a couple of years yeah. afterwards. And to me, it's the best Japan album. Yeah, I was just going to say, where do we all stand on Polaroids? Because I also think it's their best album. I, I just recently, I think I sent you a message, Mark, saying. That, um, Polaroids is the best album. Yes. That's what you said. <laughs> Those exact words. And there were three exclamation marks. Yeah, and it was all caps. Yeah. Uh, it was, no, I, I thought... By the way, that can be pretty annoying. <laughs> I'm used to it now. I've known him a long time. He used to send me handwritten notes, so this is a bit easier. <laughs> I guess in the back of my mind, I thought about, we're not on Tin Drum yet, but I always thought that Tin Drum, their last album, was the, the pinnacle of their career. And going back and listening to them back to back now, I now think that uh, Polaroids is, is, is their, their masterpiece, I think. I agree. Polaroids is their statement and it's perfect in the way that New Gold Dream is perfect. I hate to say this, but I agree with you completely. And <laughs> well, I think I might have to change my position. <laughs> if that's the case. But I, um, you took the words right out of my mouth there, Graham. That um, yeah, listening to Gentlemen Take Polaroids and the subsequent album Tin Drum uh, this time around, mm -hmm. when I I'd certainly thought of Tin Drum as being the kind of ultimate Japan album, but just didn't quite stack up in the way that Gentlemen Take Polaroids is just fantastic. It's astounding because. When it came out, it was such a leap from Quiet Life. Mm. Like, Quiet Life led the way, but Polaroids goes, like you said in your introduction, Graham, there's nothing like them. I've never heard anything like it since. No. The drumming alone mm. and the sound of the drums is just sensational. Like, he is an amazing drummer and I don't know where he got those ideas from, but they don't sound like anybody. Yeah, yeah. Mick Khan's bass is right up there. I think Rob Dean is still getting a, a Guernsey at this point. Mm. I think he might have played on like half the tracks on the album. He's definitely on there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Sylvian's really crystallised that vocal technique. It's dreamy, taking islands in Africa, mm. you know, uh, Night Porter. Songs like that are just, I mean, if Duran Duran weren't sitting there furiously copying yeah. and taking yeah, notes, I'll leave my hat. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, Night Porter alone sounds like, you know, a Duran Duran song, even though this is before the, what they came out with. Mm. Um, it's just perfect. I could listen to it yeah. every day, yeah. forever. And yeah. I still love it. <laughs> and I know that's sad to say, but mm. it's, um, it's really quite special. And I think John Punter did that again. Yeah, so we we haven't mentioned John John Punter. I thought we but, did uh, beforehand. I think we may have. We may okay. Have about, well, about he John was Hunter. interesting for the work that he'd done on the sensational Alex Harvey band, I believe. Ah, is that right? And uh, Brian Ferry's solo albums and Roxy Music albums. Yeah, I think he might have engineered Roxy. He was Music involved albums. all across the board mm. there. Yeah. Hence, uh, uh, and he he produced the Quiet Life album, which was another reason for the Roxy. Yes. Like, and Gentleman Tape Polaroids was the second one that he produced. Now, I don't remember what the reviews were at the time, but it did have a bit of success. And it didn't sound like Roxy music. No, no. So they couldn't be accused of that. No, certainly less so. Mm. And 
you mentioned the drumming on Gentleman mm. Take Polaroids and the leap that Steve Jansen made from Quiet Life to Polaroids. From Quiet Life to Gentleman Take Polaroids is just astounding. I mean, he mm. was he was nineteen. He was only he was he was only nineteen. He's the younger brother, the younger uh, bat. Yeah. yeah, the younger bat. Um, he was 19 when they recorded Quiet Life. So he was, he was recording his third album at the age of 19. It's pretty proficient. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was pretty pretty standard rock drumming in a way rock on Quiet Life. Yeah. On Quiet Life. Uh, pretty standard sound as well. But from mm. the opening couple of minutes of Gentleman Tape Polaroids, the title track, there's the kind of flanged like drum fills and, and it's really funky. It's very muscular though. The mm. playing is very strong. There's a lot of kick drum. He's, he's really pushing the songs along. Mm. Very, they started playing songs. with um, time signatures as well. Yeah, yeah, that's There's right. a lot of unusual uh, mm. time signatures within within the song, even if it's just a little turnaround here and there. And Quiet Life feels a bit kind of flat in comparison. I mean, I like I like the Quiet Life album, but mm. it feels a little bit standard and a little bit un, undeveloped. It's probably unfair to compare it to Gentleman Take Polaris, but... You don't hear so much of the kind of Mick Khan bass. I mean, there, there, there's some nice bass stuff on Quiet Life, but on, on Polaroids, it, it's, it's, it's just astounding, as, you know, <laughs> as is the drumming, the singing, the instrumentation in general. Every song, pretty much every song, mm. is a bit of a classic. I yeah. think I'm going to make a comparison between Quiet Life, Empires and Dance, Gentlemen Take Polaroids, and Sons and Fascination. The Simple Minds Link. The Simple Minds Link from one album to the next because you, that, those were the sort of underrealized, pointing the way, yeah, yeah. great albums that led to the piece de resistance yes. that came next. Yes, and they were similar time frames in terms of when the albums came That's out. That's right, yep, yep. So, yeah, I was, I was surprised at how fresh Polaroids sounded. Mm. And there were only two singles from it. Was there? That's according to my research. Gentleman was October eighty, and for some strange reason, Night Porter was released two years later, which is probably on the back of them breaking up. Yeah, and yeah, that was part of that. They were with Virgin by this point, we should point out. Yes. Oh yes, they, they left. Um, yeah, the German record. I think company. Polaroids was the first album. Mm. I think for um, for Virgin, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, that, I think that's right. Um, once again, quite a short album, eight tracks which is quite amazing. Not a long album, but I think there was an, another cover version as well, which is interesting because they used to choose some pretty strange covers. Like, Ain't that peculiar as a Smokey Robinson song? Yes. So why throw that in there? Because yeah, that's yeah. deeply uncool as well. But they seem to be just forging ahead and doing whatever the hell they wanted to at this point, which is why so many people were drawn to them yeah, and influenced yeah. by them. Mm. It only took them, you know, five years to do that. But anyway. I think arguably you could attribute their increase in success to the advertising campaign ah. that was uh, run by the Hour Price uh, record. Oh, the record, record chain, chain, back when there were record stores. Yeah, yeah, and their um, their slogan was uh, Nippon into Hour Price <laughs> for, for the new Japan album. Right. This Gross. ties back to monkey magic quite nicely. <laughs> it does. Doesn't it? <laughs> Different times, as Graham's fond of saying. Yes. Can I just interject here for a second yeah. and tell you that Gentleman Takes Polaroids reached number 60 on the UK charts, which is hardly a successful single. 
that is. Oh, okay. And Knight Porter two years later with number 29, yeah, yeah. which is a strange turnaround in fortunes. So they, they never did really well on the charts at all. No. Ever, ever, no. I don't think. Well, I think, well, we'll get to Tin Drum, but Ghost was a top 10 hit. Oh, yes, right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Ghost, that, yeah. which, is, which is strange in itself. Yeah, well, yeah. before we leave Polaroids, I just want to mention uh, when Japan appeared on the old grey whistle test. Do you remember the old grey whistle test? Yeah. Which, a, if you're not English, you probably would never have seen. Well, well, I'm not English, well, well, but it was I, never shown in Australia, was it? Yeah, no, it, it was on. It was. I used to see it on on the ABC uh, late at night. Really? Yeah, and um, you watched a lot of television then. I did. Things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm still watching television. He's all burnt out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Japan uh, performed on the Old Grey Whistle Test, and they performed uh, "Swing" and from Polaroids. From Polaroids. So this, this must have been 1980, I guess. Mm -hmm. Swing and My New Career. Okay. Well, both tr both tracks from that album. Yeah, both yeah. tracks from that when album. When was the album released, Patty? 80, but when? Uh, towards the end of 80. October, I'm, I'm guessing. Mm. Interesting guess. Mm, 24th. <laughs> That's I'm going to go with. Well, <laughs> How do you have access to the inf this information? Uh, yeah. My mind is, very impressive. is full of stuff. Steel trap. Mm. But um, I, I just wanted to uh, draw attention to this because there was, if anyone ever gets to see Japan, this is a really good clip to watch because... Um, and how would they go about doing that, Graham? Mm. Uh, well, there's this thing called the internet and you can go on YouTube. Oh, hang on. Um, I should be writing this down. You should be writing this down. It's uh, Y-O-U-T-U-B-E <laughs> dot com. And um, yeah, you, you can search Japan on the old grey whistle test. They're actually on twice, but... Um, this particular time I found quite amusing. Uh, well, first of all, see it because Japan are great and, and, and live they sound exactly like the record. They're mm. very good renditions of, of, of the songs. Of their own songs. Of their own songs. They did great covers I reckon, of their own songs. I reckon <laughs> when it comes to hearing bands play Japan songs, Japan. You, can, you, can't you, can, you can't go past. No, I think they're one Japan. of the best. <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon they're up there. Mm. Uh, anyway, there's this, uh, this lady called Annie Nightingale who was the host. And I just want to read what she says when she's introducing them because I thought it was very funny and, and um, a little ironic. I must admit to being totally perplexed by our second studio guest tonight, Japan. When they first appeared, it seemed they were pretty boys in makeup whose main aim was to steal the hearts of under 13-year-old girls from London to Tokyo. I don't know why okay. she chose. I don't know why she chose that particular age. Mm. No one seemed particularly bothered about their music. Then what? The Sunday Times compared Japan to the Beatles. Their fourth album, Gentlemen Take Polaroids, received guarded critical acclaim in some corners and it looked like Japan had finally beaten their own visual backlash. Now you have to understand that this lady just said beaten their own visual backlash <laughs> whilst wearing probably the most disgusting plaid pantsuit, yellow pantsuit that I've ever seen. Um, and so, you, you don't care for such things. <laughs> no, no. But um, it's 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 hilarious to see that that lady um, uh, deliver that line. So you should see that for the, for that for someone and, and who understood style as well as she did. Mm. <laughs> yes, as well as she did. Yeah. But after witnessing that, stay online and watch Japan, particularly play Swing, because um, the song Swing the rather so, than the, song the style. Swing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Listen to them Swing. Glenn Miller. Because. Uh, the song starts and then um, Mick Khan moves to the front of the stage and starts playing that wonderful fretless bass and you, you, you see immediately why that was so unique, why that was so original. And um, I, I encourage anyone 
who's listening to this podcast to to check that out because it's a, it was the band, I think, at their peak. At their peak. Well, we all agree on an album, mm. which is rare. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's both exciting and a little uninteresting. <laughs> I, I'm going to, before we leave Polaroids, I'm going to throw in a little interesting story that um, Rob Dean, the guitarist for Polaroids, had been pushed to the margins a little bit by this point, but he was still in the band. But I actually went to school with Rob Dean. You may not believe this, but it's a different Rob Dean, but it was still Rob Dean. <laughs> okay. So that's so, my connection to So Japan. you went to school with, with someone with the same name as someone who was being pushed out of Japan in 1980. Yes, Rob Dean. Rob Dean, the same he Rob Dean. He wasn't the same, the same Rob Dean. The same name Rob Dean. <laughs> the same name. Exactly the same name. Now, wow. is that a coincidence? Or is <laughs> so, so what 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 happened to Rob Dean? What? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> your 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 Rob Dean. Well, I think he changed his name after what happened to Japan. He was, mm. he was David little, Bat. He never he never bounced back after that. He never he? was the same again after being forced out of Japan. <laughs> even though he wasn't. <laughs> nice guy, lovely guy. He may have been school captain actually, which is certainly uh-huh. better than being in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you did mention before we uh, b- before we started recording that you had a story about Rob Dean mm. that that would take some topping in in the <laughs> mundane stakes. Well, I wanted to shock you. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to see your, your faces when you, you when I said it to see what your <laughs> yeah. reaction would be. Yeah, and you were yeah, thinking yeah. quickly: Is this possible? Yeah, Could yeah. Rob Dean from Japan have gone to school in Sunnybank, Queensland? It was mm. the Sunnybank? Yeah, okay. Sunnybank High. Mm. It's not impossible. While simultaneously, While simultaneously being pushed out of Japan. <laughs> pushed out of a band in England. It would have been a stretch, but, you know, air travel was around. <laughs> That's true. Well, funnily enough, Rob Dean did leave the band after Gentlemen Take Polaroids. Well, he had to finish year 10. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the headmaster insisted. <laughs> well, he was the school captain. <laughs> <laughs> so... But yes, he did leave the band, and he did ultimately emigrate to Australia, which 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 is what put the thought in my head. But hang on, maybe so. My he was, story is not quite as preposterous. Maybe he was both twenty four years old and in Japan <laughs> in nineteen eighty at the same time as being fifteen well, and in Brisbane. I'd like to think that we welcomed him we at, at our school, whereas mm. he was being pushed out of the band. We would have welcomed a second Rob Dean, a second Rob Dean <laughs> at Sunnybank High. Okay. Yeah. Come back, Rob. All is forgiven. <laughs> All is forgiven. <laughs> so, so Rob, Rob ended up forming a band called Illustrated Man. Yes, he went on to other things. With Gang of Four former members and is that right? Roger Mason from The Models. Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, oh, yes, that's right. Roger Mason. He, he features in another story I've got for you yes. later. Excellent. This is it's even better than this one. But <laughs> you, you, you went to school with Roger Mason <laughs> too. Yeah, no, we're way I'll, ahead of you. I'll, I'll, you are, but I'll, I'll keep that one up my sleeve. Well, yes. uh, should we move on to Tin Drum? Yes. What yes. many people think of as Japan's crowning mm. glory, but we've since proven them wrong. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah. these, you're these, wrong. These people are wrong. Yes. But what's, what's interesting to me is that uh, we've mentioned the fact that the name of the band is Japan. They became successful in Japan. Then all of a sudden, China was was the the focus. Was their focus? Was yes. the focus? On, it was almost like a, a concept album mm. of, of songs with using traditional Chinese sounds mm. and, uh, and as far as we understood them to be. <laughs> I knew exactly what you they were know doing. what they were doing straight yeah. away. And we should also mention this is 1981, so they've knocked these albums out of the park: 79, yeah. 80, and 81, mm. and all of them. 
quite different to each other. Quite a different production as well. Yes, and leaving John Punter behind, mm. Steve Nye, I believe. Mm. And The Art of Parties was the lead single, which is a great song. Mm. Probably, well, okay, I won't say it's the best song on the album, but it's certainly one of the best songs on Tin Drum. Yep. Very funky, very dancey. A little yep. bit of sort of Adrian Ballou style wailing guitar. I was going to say, this is very Adrian Ballou, isn't it? Yeah, but obviously my friend Rob Dean yes. wasn't playing the guitar on it. No. I don't remember well, who it was. He, he had a history exam. He did. He did well. Who was playing guitar there, on there, that? There was a couple of Japanese guitar yeah, players. Guitarists yeah. that got, because they, they became uh, fascinated with Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yes. And there was a guy who was um, a guitarist from Ipudu, I think they were called. Ipudu. Ipudu. Uh, and, and I think he may have played on, on Tin Drum, but I'll have to check that. Mm. I'll have to check my sources. Yes. And, of course, after that there was another guitarist when they played live, was the guitarist who was in the Yellow Mag- Magic Orchestra, I think. Right. right. Where did Ryuki Sakamoto fit in here, or did he not? No, point? no, the, I think David Sylvian worked with him after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it but was, staying it, on Tin Drum. Yes, it was interesting that, uh, as you say, the China thing, when, mm. to the best of my knowledge, none of them had ever been to China. I don't think you could travel there quite that easily it, in 1981. True, true It enough. wasn't the open, welcoming com- country you know, it is that's now. That's a fair point. It's mm. a fair point. Um, and I really like some of the songs on the Tin Drum album. I'm happy to say that. But it is just a fraction of kitsch, I think. Mm. The, You're looking back, yeah. Uh, so songs like like Canton and Cantonese Boy and even Visions of China. That's an uh, obvious which, one. Which, yeah. which, which I quite like. Mm. I, I, think, I think it's a great pop song. But it, do, it does feel in some ways about as authentically Chinese as leprechauns are, are authentically Irish. So, so, so quite, quite a bit then. Yeah, quite <laughs> obviously, yes. So well, accurate, you'd I've, say. <laughs> I don't know when you guys last went to Ireland, <laughs> but they don't take too kindly to your sort over there <laughs> with your loidy-doidy-doy. We should point out that Patrick has form uh, for some uh, Irish. Yes, I, uh, I, have, I have an Irish background, amazingly. And uh, yeah, so there's he's not yeah, drunk right now. There's though. a certain there's a certain kind of <laughs> cod Irish thing which uh, feels leprechaun esque, which feels to me somewhat replicated well, by the, Japan with this album. Yeah, they hadn't been the, to China, but um, they hadn't eaten Chinese <laughs> takeaway. So I, I reckon that that may have led them yeah. to this album. And they were from Catford. Yeah, mm. that's right. Which starts with C. It starts with C. <laughs> And the album, well, the album cover makes it pretty clear that David Sylvian he's, has he's got, eaten Chinese. He's got chopsticks yeah. in his yeah. hand, yeah. hasn't he? <laughs> That's right. And the rest of the band aren't featured on the cover, no. which is a little rough. And isn't there a picture of Mao Zedong on the cover? Yeah. And the wall. It's like he's in a little shack eating yeah. eating his noodles. Yeah. It's almost like they were trying a little too hard, weren't they? Or were they going so far around to irony you know, <laughs> that they were they sort of came back again? Yeah. That's what I think they were trying to do, to be so kitsch that it was ironic. But they're mm. a very serious band. I don't mm. really know yeah. that I ever saw that side of them. Yeah, um, their albums were short of laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> I agree. Another uh, eight-track album. Yes, yes. Notable for the hit single, Ghosts. 
And what five. a strange, strange what song. What a strange song. And probably most people who are aware of Japan in England would know Ghosts. Mm. Yeah, it went top five. It yeah. Went yeah. Top five. Yeah. And, uh, strange, and slow, it, lilting kind of song. And the, the music, it was almost just like unusual electronic sound effects mm. happening in the background. It was really, really amazing. And it didn't it didn't include even much of a bass, as I recall. No. No. What no, was, what was McCann doing? Getting Chinese. Just when I think I'm winning When I've broken every door The ghosts of my life The wilder It did have four singles, I, w- I will say that. That's actually a lot mm. for Japan. So I think that was the peak of their commercial success and it was a top 20 album yep. in the UK. So they were starting to coin it. Yes, yes. Mick Khan had other things on his mind at the time. Like? Like the fact that um, David Sylvian had stolen his girlfriend. That's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. The interband relationship. Yes. Got it was like the, who was it? Um... Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, could, could have been the back. No, uh, George Harrison took uh, the yes. wife of uh, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton, come on, uh, yeah, fell in love with Patty Boyd. Yes, um, and some number of years after he declared his love for Patty Boyd, sorry, he declared to George Harrison his love for George Harrison's wife. Took them some number of years to actually get together, but yes, that was. Uh, so a similar thing happened. A similar thing to happened, Mick Khan. except mm. except literally, I think, what uh, during the recording sessions for, for Tin Drum or shortly afterwards, Mick Khan's girlfriend moved in with David Sylvian. Ouch! And I think would... I think she might have even had a brief involvement with Steve Steve Jansen. Ouch! So, so they were very really, similar. It's lucky yes, that yes. Rob Dean wasn't around because I tell you that guy was a lady killer. Yeah. He would have definitely had a go. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Only Richard Barbieri missed out. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And I'd just like to say we can compare how interesting this is, the Rob Dean story that I was going to mention, which is that he ended up becoming an ornithological illustrator. So illustrating books about birds, um, living in Central America, mm-hmm. illustrating books about birds. And that's, I think, to the best of my knowledge, that's what he does for a living these days. Right. Wow. Gave the guitar away. Uh, he still He still plays. He plays in a band as well, but his illustrations, if you get a chance to see them, he goes on under the name Robert Dean, but uh, yeah, his illustrations are just fantastic. So like he's a really talented mm. illustrator. He was, a, he was a good guitarist too. He was, yeah. I, I thought he was very good. The, I don't the think he should ever have been forced out. Well, he, there was not that much for him to do probably in, in the kind of tin, tin drum era for, no, for no, Japan. There, there wasn't a great deal of guitar. And his hair wasn't quite right. No, he had curly hair, didn't he? Mm. That's never good. Mm. I don't don't know that he was as much of a fan of of the makeup. Oh, really? Didn't like the makeup? Well, he wasn't quite as heavily laden, was he? (laughs) uh, Possibly not. Possibly not. So that may have precipitated what happened shortly after Tindrum. Right, the the, 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 the the girlfriend-stealing The girlfriend-stealing singer in some ways having a negative impact. On the band. They got married, she and David Sylvian. Is that right? They did. Ah. I think they were together for 12 years. So Mick could have still gotten it back with her afterwards. He was interested. I think he probably moved on by then. 12 years is a long time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Tin Drum, our second favourite. Gentleman gentleman takes out number one spot on the podium. Tin Drum with a silver. 
quiet life with a bronze. bronze. Solid bronze. Solid, solid, solid bronze. performance. Solid bronze. solid bronze. And I, I still have a place in my heart for the first album. Yes. Okay. We're, but we're going we're gonna to say that those three albums, the last three albums, the third, fourth and fifth albums were the quintessential Japan defining albums. Albums. And, and I still and say they're post-punk. Yeah, they, they fit neatly into uh, the period that we're talking about. Mm. It, 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 maybe people might think it's a bit slick for post-punk, but I, I think I think it I think I, it fits in. I think it's an interesting left turn from punk because mm. going out of punk didn't have to mean only one thing. And that that's where I would say these guys were, were doing their own thing after punk and that can be the doors were open to almost yeah. anything. And this is outrageous and just as different as what Susie and the Banshees and Public Image and Joy mm. Division and all these other bands were doing. It just wasn't as obvious. Yeah. Their influences weren't punk. Yeah. That's the real key to this. Yeah, well, they you, were you, doing so, things so, before So punk. literally if punk hadn't existed, you could say that Susie and the Banshees wouldn't have existed, yeah. let's say, yep. in in that form. But if punk hadn't existed, might Japan still have, have existed? I would say they the would have existed but may not have been successful because the once – punk had sort of played out and other things became possible, Japan was one of the things that became possible because it was another alternative to what had gone before. And what's interesting about Japan is that they introduced a glamour and a kind of sense of dress-up to the dour sort of post-punk landscape, which was to be, you know, kind of miserable and play dark music. They played a kind of a miserable dark music, but it looked glamorous and kind of fun and looked like you could be having a, a good time which led the way to, you know, the other things that we've talked about that may or may not be classified as post-punk. To me, anything that came out of the wake or the wash-up of punk is post-punk. Yeah, That yeah, may yeah. be not everybody's definition, but that's my definition and I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to go with you on this, I think. All right, well, that's why, that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> if we're finished with Tin Drum, yes. we, should, we should talk about the immediate breakup. They reached their commercial peak, a top five single, top 20 album. People are clamouring for Japan. Hansa Records releases a compilation called Assemblage with the first two albums and subsequent, you know, remixes of Quiet yep. Life and other bits and bobs to cash European in on that. European Sun, which is a great yeah, European song. Sun, yep. yeah, lots of great stuff. It's a really good album, but for people who discovered Japan during that period, it was a little bit strange hearing those things in the same way that Simple Minds had made that very much mm. left turn around the same time. So they're doing well. Everything's going great, yep. apart from the boyfriend, uh, girlfriend stealing stuff. And, and, they and, and maybe they had just reached the, the end of their natural course. Actually, Mick Khan, I think during the recording of Tin Drum, uh, announced that he was planning on doing a solo album or had started working on a solo album. So right. you think of, well, I certainly thought of, of the Japan split as being uh, mainly Sylvian at work, you know, going solo, but... but I, yeah, I believe that uh, Mick Khan sort of started. Well, he released Titles, his solo album, '81. Mm. Titles I was great. I love that. Fantastic album. album, if you like Fretless Bass, mm. and and we did because it was mm. the '80s, um, and that, that was a great album. Mm. And I think he, his was the first one out of the bo- out of the blocks before Sylvian's yeah, yeah, solo, yeah, which yeah. was um, and I can see the cover and I got Brilliant Trees, 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 Trees yeah. which which was great as well. Really good album. Mm. Um, and uh, he was and Mick Khan was playing with other people. He was playing with. Uh, Gary Newman. Yes. Over to you, Patrick. Yes, Mick Khan did play on the dance. Did he play on the whole album? Uh, played in a few songs, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Rob Dean played on the album My as mate well. Rob. So, Always turns up. Yeah, mm-hmm. so this was the beginning of the end for Gary Newman commercially. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, so the the dance album did feature some fairly prominent Japan work alumni. Alumni, yes, well, yes, and in- some 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 great bass playing by Mick. It's interesting that we'll, we'll go on to Gary Newman for a second here, but the the album after that featured Pino Palladino. Yes, also yes. A, a fretless bass exponent Wizard, of some yes, note. Yes, best known perhaps for his work. With, with Paul, Paul Young. Young, yes, Wherever everywhere, I lay my hat. Manhattan, so on that album. No parlay, if I pronounce that correctly. That's yeah, very good. I thought it was parlays, but uh, non parlays. Mm. Um, interesting side note: the Pino Palladino track. This isn't another school story. No, no. Um, that features in music for con- for chameleons is very well known for uh, Steve Coogan's dance rendition. Routine. Rendition. Have you oh, ever sorry. seen the yes. YouTube clip? I'll yes. urge you to seek that out once you've understood Graham's technology. Yes. Get onto YouTube, look <laughs> yes. up Steve Coogan. <laughs> Gary dance, Newman, or, Gary or, Newman or, Alan Partridge. or Alan Partridge dancing in his mm. caravan to that track. It's something to see if you like fretless bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, they yes. all went off and did their own things, had some success here and there. Yes, David Sylvian obviously uh, got, got involved with some uh, film soundtrack work with mm-hmm. Rochi Sakamoto for That's Merry Christmas, right. Mr. Lawrence. Which came out in 82. 82, The soundtrack to the film, yeah. yeah. Had a bit of a hit with that. Yeah. What was the song called? Forbidden Colours. Forbidden Colours, Forbidden Colours. Yeah. Colours. It was really good. I, I really, when that song came out, I was actually hoping. You said, this is the best song this ever. This is the best song ever. Uh, when that song. With, with only one dissenter in Graham's household. <laughs> it was a Graham. We know who it was. It was your mum, as yeah. always. Yes, no. This, this sounds boring. Yeah. She said. Why can't, even, be, why can't it be more like Love Song by Simple Minds? She's not doing anything. <laughs> she'd gotten on board with Simple Minds. <laughs> yeah, by then. By then. She, yeah. <clears throat> now, the, um, I, I was hoping that that song would become big because I kind of wanted more people in Australia in particular to discover David Sylvian. And uh, I don't think it was a hit here. It, it, mm. I, I heard it here and there. Modest. Modest. Mod- but the movie was modest. a bit of a hit. David Bowie starred. Mm. Yeah. Jack Thompson. Jack Thompson. Good old Jack Thompson. Still, still around. So, do we say that there ends the story? I was going to throw throw in the mm. Japan reunion under another name ten yes. years later. And yes. I think it was ninety one mm-hmm. that the four of them, less Rob Dean again, yes. um, reformed to do an album together under the name of Rain Tree Crow. Now, the story that I have, and you could tell me I'm wrong, is that um, all of them wanted to call it Japan because it was the same four members except for David Sylvian. He refused to, to release it under the name. He was being a dick, basically. He was being pretentious and difficult. Yes, I did see an interview in Q magazine, I think, with the other guys. The the other three. The, the other three, yes, um, talking about the Rain Tree Crow album and talking about the name of the band, Rain Tree Crow, and uh, one of them, might have been Steve Jansen, said that yeah, it was David's idea to call it Rain Tree Crow. You won't believe... Which band member came up with that pretentious band name? <laughs> and that was so, his brother. That was, I think it was Steve. I think it was Steve. It, it was either Steve or uh, Mick Khan. Yeah. But it was. Uh, it was. Japan had always struck me as being one of the most fantastically pretentious bands that I knew, and I was. I. I. I have always 
felt a strong affinity with pretension. Um, as, as, <laughs> I as, find that as hard you know, to believe. As you know. As an art form. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it was quite startling to me to, to, to hear the other guys in, from Japan criticising the singer as, as being pretentious because I thought that was the sort of cornerstone of who they were. Mm. Yeah, I think it was disappointing that it wasn't called a Japan album because it's great. It's a great album, and mm. it does actually sound exactly like we'd, you'd expect them to be doing ten years later. I, I haven't heard it. It's it's brilliant. Mm. It's really really good. I mean, it's it's not in this level of the three albums that we're talking about. No. I don't think it's not consistent enough, and it's ten years later, so things yeah. have moved on and things have caught mm. up. But it, it is a very good album, and it stacks up with anything that they did. Mm. And um, I, I'd say it deserves to be mentioned. Did David Sylvian bring his wife along to the set? I think they were still together at that point, so possibly not. Okay. Yes. Still a bit touchy. Maybe. Still a bit of a touchy fight. subject, yes. Mm. yes. Yes, we haven't been blessed with the autobiographies of any members of Japan. No. Um, oh, Mick Khan wrote one. He did? We have been blessed with just the one autobiography. By <laughs> Let me clarify. When I say when, none, I mean one. <laughs> when did Mick Khan? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I read it today. You read the book? No, no, I read that he'd written a book today. Yeah, okay. No, um, I read that too and I can't remember the name of it, but he definitely did write a book. I'll have to, I'll have to check it Because he, he has, we haven't mentioned this, he has passed away. Yes, yes. He did. Um, the book was called Japan and Self-Existence, which is a very enigmatic title for a book. Yes. And pro- kind of- possibly well worth getting. I it's think the so. kind of pretentious title that David Sylvia might have come up with. <laughs> <laughs> he, probably, <laughs> Allegedly. He, probably, he probably went to David Sylvian uh, asking for, you know, what's a good title for this book? Yeah, yeah. And he came up with Rain Tree Crow, but that had always been. Yeah. 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 Enough no, with I, the I, Rain Tree Crow, he said. <laughs> it was released in 2009. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's fairly recent. I mean, Mick well, Khan died, what, a couple of years 2010, ago? 2010, I think it was. He, he Did passed he? away. Yes, yeah, so well, oh, it wasn't well, long was after the long, book, yeah. yeah. Well, I think we probably ought to read it. Yes. You're in the book trade, Paddy. Can't you rustle up a cheap copy? <laughs> you can read. Can you, can you do that? that? I'll give it a go. Next time we, we discuss Japan in depth in, in the podcast, we'll be... We'll be, <laughs> we'll be well informed. <laughs> yes. Finally, we'll know what we're talking about. Okay. Well, um, uh, are we going to call it on, on that point? Are we I, th- gonna, I think we should. And as I said, I think, I think my assertion that they fit into what we would describe as post-punk is, is mm. a valid one and there would be people that would dispute it, but... I think you have to look at the wash-up of punk allowed a lot of different things yeah. to happen and it doesn't have to just be four guys and guitar, bass and drums doing, you know, mm. what we associate with, yeah. with that. These guys were doing stuff just as interesting as anybody that was out mm. there and they did it in three albums that they burnt very brightly yeah. doing and then stopped, which is pretty post-punk. Mm. And also technically... Now, they were influenced heavily by New York Dolls, who are kind of what pro- proto punk. Pre punk. Can one Pre-cursed use that term? Yes. Exactly. Um, so a band that that directly influenced punk, Japan and, were and the Bowie by. Roxy yep. lineage is there, which mm, of course mm. leads straight to everything that we're talking about. So, yeah, I so think it was they, they they took a circuitous route to to post punk, and all the more interesting for that. Yes, I absolutely. Think. Yeah, and the albums still stand up very very well now.